Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing the TV hit of the summer, Mike White's The White Lotus, which stars a stacked ensemble cast, including Jennifer Coolidge, Murray Bartlett, Connie Britton, Steve Zahn, and more, as a group of spoiled vacationers in Hawaii and the hotel staff who have to deal with them. So this has been airing on HBO on Sunday nights, as people are no doubt aware, because it has received an enormous amount of media coverage and just like Twitter attention. It has been everywhere. I started watching the first day it aired because the reviews have been great, and I have just had such a great time watching the show. I mean, we are truly going to be loving up to our podcast title uh, this week. Like, this show is so fucking entertaining and interesting. Um, It's only six episodes, so we will discuss the sort of spoiler-free zone at the beginning part of this episode, as per usual, and then very spoilery show, so we will launch into that part in the latter half, but I'm highly recommended. (laughs) Yeah, it's... My my mom is always like, I want to watch all this TV, but she's a teacher, and so, like, they just work so much and don't have time. And when I told her this was six episodes, she was like, I can do that. (laughs) Like, that's manageable. And for you too, listeners, uh, six episodes, you can knock that out. And, like, so much to talk about also in terms of, like, what's going on with the show, which will be really fun to do. So, as usual, we will start with some background on who made this show and then also the production of it, which is unusually interesting in this case. So this was written and directed, the whole thing, by Mike White, who I think a lot of listeners probably will not have heard of unless they are serious TV fans from like the past 10 years. But you have probably seen something that he was involved with in some capacity because he has worked a ton. He also has a very distinctive face. So like, even though he's not a very prolific actor, you'll recognize him if you've seen him in one of his sort of like, I've shown up for one episode in a prestige comedy sort of roles. (laughs) He started out writing for television on Dawson's Creek and Freaks and Geeks, which I actually didn't know. I love Freaks and Geeks and I didn't know he was on the writing team for that. And he's had a run of writing um, and in some case directing uh, indie films for like the past 20 years, including Chuck and Buck, The Good Girl, which was... Like, one of Jennifer Aniston's first, like, serious roles when she was still on Friends. Brad Status and Beatrice at Dinner, which got a lot of attention for Salma Hayek a couple of years ago. She was sort of, like, one of the people who didn't quite get nominated for an Oscar, but definitely got a lot of buzz for that. I saw that movie and I thought it was fine, but she was definitely great. But the thing that he is probably most known for is for writing and acting in School of Rock uh, around 20 years ago which I, of course, saw at the time because I was, like, 13 years old. and I mean, yeah, millennial legend. Yeah, he's friends with Jack Black and sort of wrote it for him. And then, obviously, Richard Linklater directed it. And I don't... That movie was a massive hit. It made, like, hundreds of millions of dollars, which no one involved in it expected to happen. And it had a real impact on public education in, in America because loads of high schools started teaching, like, more pop music and getting kids interested in instruments that weren't, like, the violin. So yep. <laughs> Jack Black is like, this is my impact on culture. <laughs> yes. But the thing that he personally is most known for, as opposed to, like, the thing he did that was the most successful, is probably the TV show Enlightened, which was also on HBO from 2011 to 2012, which starred Laura Dern and is beloved by critics and was cancelled prematurely, which people are still bitter about. 
I watched a few episodes of this last year when I was kind of recovering from my illness that technically wasn't COVID, but seems definitely to have been COVID. And it was amazing. But I also was like, I don't have the brain power to do this right now. So I will finish that at some point. But it was clearly incredible. And he has tried to get stuff made at HBO in the 10 years since that went off the air. Like he's pitched them multiple things, including one show that was supposed to star Jennifer Coolidge, whom he's very good friends with and who appears in The White Lotus. Um, And they said no both times. So he's been like, desperately kind of trying to get back. And this was how it wound up happening. Basically, HBO, because of all the COVID mess with production, wound up having a hole in their programming this summer. And like, went to him because they know he writes really fast and writes by himself as opposed to getting a writer's room, which obviously is like another step in the process that takes a long time. And was like, can you write something for us? It can just go into production like immediately. (laughs) And he was like, yes, thank you for asking. So he wrote the scripts for this in two and a half months, which is absurd. It's so good and smart. But like, we've both read like a couple of interviews with him and it's sort of interesting to see like, obviously, this is an incredible show, but also it's all, like, building and stuff that was clearly percolating through his mind for ages because um, I've not seen any of Enlightened, but that show is about this woman who sort of has a breakdown and then reinvents her life after this experience of going to, like, a vacation in Hawaii. And he, as a person, Mike White, has been a contestant on several reality shows, uh, including Survivor. So, like, he is, like, this wealthy white guy who has been on Survivor and wrote this show that was sort of about, like, a transformative experience for this quite rich white lady, right? And this show is sort of re-examining all of that stuff and talking more about sort of privilege and how rich people are terrible and colonialism and stuff. And it is about a bunch of people going and having this transformative vacation in Hawaii while being like, oh, this is terrible for all the service industry workers. It's terrible for like the indigenous people of Hawaii. There's all these sort of incredibly complex financial and class-based dynamics going on there. It's sort of an interesting critique building on stuff he has done in his own life before. I also think in terms of the Survivor stuff, like he's obsessed with reality television and specifically with Survivor. (laughs) And I don't watch Survivor, but like I know how Survivor works i have seen a couple of episodes in like the aughts when it was the huge thing on tv and the ethos of that show is sort of beyond like the bigger thematic things that you're talking about is very Mm -hmm. much baked into how this show functions right and also crucially he was on the david's versus goliath season which is literally what this show is. Because like David's versus Goliath is pretty much what it sounds like. You had one team that was like all these really successful people and then the other team that was like the normies. And Mike White is this really successful Hollywood guy who was on this team with like a bunch of CEOs and stuff. So he was like literally on a reality show where he is both participating in and observing the behavior of all these nightmarish rich people. But he kind of thought of himself before that as like the outsider because like he's queer, he's kind of an eccentric, he's an artist. And then he went on the David's versus Goliath show and was like, oh, I am the rich guy. (laughs) Well, and he's an interesting figure because as you say, he obviously, objectively speaking, has been very successful in his career. He's made a lot of money, but it's not as though he's Paul Thomas Anderson, right? Who like fully just gets to make what he wants to do anyone will give him money. That seems great. Like, seems like a nice life. Mike White has 
these sort of passion things he wants to do. And HBO's like, no, sorry. And then he winds up writing the Emoji movie because he needs cash to like buy a house or whatever, right? Like, that's not the same. So he kind of represents a slightly middle of the road path for writers in Hollywood, I think. That's definitely above people who just like get staffed on shows. And like, that's also a good job, but they don't have any control really over like what they're doing. But he's not at the level of someone who is totally just like, well, Wes Anderson, a Paul Thomas Anderson, whatever. But he's also like a genius. <laughs> so one of the characters on the show, who's played by Murray Bartlett, um, whom we will talk about more in a minute, uh, is Armand, who's like the head of the hotel staff. And Mike White said in an interview, he was like, yeah, I really identified with that guy because like, as a writer in Hollywood, you have to just like deal with the executives all the time. And it's completely, completely maddening right because you have to just be like yes that sounds like such a great idea (laughs) (laughs) but as you say it's not like that is the same as like working at a hotel right so it's just like an interesting combination of things and he seems very self-aware uh there was a great interview with him and vulture after the finale um which we'll probably talk about more when we get to the end because he was obviously talking about how the show ends but yeah just fascinating backstory um and then they obviously shot this in a bubble in hawaii in like the fall and winter at the four seasons in maui which amazing scam if if hbo was like we need you to write something really fast it just needs to shoot in like a couple of months and you're like yeah i'm gonna write something that takes place in a fancy resort in hawaii send me there and all my friends like congratulations and this show is now going to continue taking place at other fancy resorts in other parts of the world. But um, why don't we get into more of the plot summary and the yeah. characters on the show? Shall I introduce our main leads? Please do. Okay, so the show begins, first of all, with this like rich, maybe 30-year-old white guy, Shane, who's played by Jake Lacey. And he's sitting in the airport waiting to leave and we know he's been on his honeymoon and we also know that someone at his resort has died because there is a box marked human remains being shipped onto the plane (laughs) so then that is the kind of that's the prologue and then we go back one week in time as we lead up to what we know will be some sort of death from one of the characters, which is kind of like a bit of a tease because the show is not a murder mystery in any way, but that gives a bit of a conventional hook to the overall story, which really begins with these various groups of guests uh, getting a boat to this small island in Hawaii. So one group is the Mossbackers, where the mum is sort of a Facebook type CEO played by Connie Britton. Her husband is played by Steve Zahn. And then they've got two Zoomer kids. One of him is a college age daughter played by Sydney Sweeney. And then uh, a son named Quinn played by Fred Hechinger. And then their daughter's friend Paula played by Brittany O'Grady. And these two girls are these extremely uh, like Twitter leftist, cynical terrifying like 20 year olds just like they know so much political theory but they are just cold as ice just we will discuss all of the performances it's incredible and then Quinn the teenage son is just this monotone sort of outcast who's clearly incredibly miserable to be stuck on the island with his family because like his mom is this like controlling person who's a workaholic and is never emotionally open and their father is this just kind of 
doofus. Like it's, it's he's just I mean it's a Steve Zahn role right but it's a fantastic Steve Zahn role and like in the early episodes he's really concerned because he thinks he might have testicular cancer so he's got this all these masculinity issues there's a lot of masculinity issues at play so then the other another one of the groups is Shane and Rachel who are the newlyweds Alexandra Daddario plays Rachel and she is fantastic in this role uh, this is an actress who is 35 but looks much younger and has been basically playing the hot girl for like 15 years of B-movies and that sort of thing and in this relationship Shane is this really rich sort of fratty guy who comes from a family with money and is just got he's just like he isn't a person like he does not <laughs> he does not he does not recognize that any other human being has an internal life he is a spoiled brat. He's just this very sort of decisive and powerful person in this relationship. And then his new wife, Rachel, is more middle class. She's come into this marriage very naively. And it's like immediately there's this huge power imbalance between them. She's also a journalist, but like she's like a clickbait journalist who's just working in a content farm somewhere. Like she's not very successful. And also I think it's strongly implied that she's also not very good. Yes. And then the other kind of guest person who's got the big role is played by Jennifer Coolidge. And, oh God, what a great character. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge, I'm sure you'll all have seen in stuff. Like you'll probably know her best as the Bend and Snap lady from Legally Blonde. Uh, but she's hilarious, incredible imp improv comedian. And she's playing this sort of 50, 60 year old lady who we don't know how she's this rich, but like she's got a ton of emotional problems. She's clearly had like every possible treatment around and she immediately goes to the spa, like she unloads on the spa employee about how like, oh, she's here with her mother's ashes and like she's had all these emotional issues and breakups and like basically has a breakdown in front of this uh, spa employee named Belinda, who's played by Natasha Rothwell. And this immediately makes it clear that Jennifer Coolidge's character, Tanya, is going to become fucking obsessed with Belinda, who she's decided is her new, like, personal therapist. Because <laughs> this, like, very unbalanced relationship. And then the other main character is, as Morgan said, Murray Bartlett playing Armand, who is the maitre d'oeuvre of the whole hotel. And the show just does loads of really fun and smart stuff with the concept of customer service as a performance and as emotional labor, because he has got this extremely theatrical persona where he's got this manic grin and he is just buzzing around the whole hotel, organizing everything and being incredibly lovely. But he's also very cynical about it because like before the guests arrive on the island, you see him giving a pep talk to this young woman who's it's her first day. And he's like, you need to just have no personality. You've got to be invisible and interchangeable. And our, the whole point is for us to like facilitate the most relaxing experience possible with all these like demanding psychos have come to stay here. And that kind of sets the scene for his story, which like everyone else in the show does involve an element of just full emotional and personality breakdown. <laughs> Yes, it becomes clear a couple episodes in that he has a substance abuse problem, which had been not an issue for him until he stumbles upon the bag of the teenage girls, which has like just tons of drugs in it. It gets like turned into the lost and found and he's like, oh no. <laughs> and is also dealing with one of the central conflicts of the show is that Shane and Rachel, the honeymooners, get put into the wrong suite that it was not the suite that his mother, of course, booked for them. And one of the sort of amusing little ironies of the show is that the suite they do get booked into 
does seem to be nicer than the suite that they were supposed to get booked into, in which into which they eventually get moved. But Shane just like obsessively the entire time is like they've screwed us. They've screwed us. Like I have to make yeah. a fuss. He's over basically this. not interested in the honeymoon. Like he's just completely obsessed with the idea that like he hasn't got what he deserves, and also he's found someone to be his enemy. So he's more interested in defeating. The Armand, the maitre d'eux, in a sort of battle of masculinity than actually spending time with his new wife or relaxing. Yeah, which then Armand, like, just goes nuts because it's too much. Yeah, Armand has, like, 55 jobs and Shane's one entire purpose in life now is to defeat him while he's also doing 50 other jobs. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So, basically, every single one of these plot lines is, like, amazing. (laughs) The writing is great. I do think there are a couple of little elements that are slightly underdeveloped or like don't quite totally make sense, which I think is the effect of the show being written in two and a half months and having no oversight. Yeah. I think we kind of discussed it like when the show was earlier on in its run, just the fact that Shane is, I mean, hypnotically awful. He is just terrible, but he's so terrible that you're kind of like, why did Rachel marry him? Because like, obviously, lovely women marry shit men all the time. But he doesn't kind of have enough charisma and vulnerability for it to be plausible for her to actually have married him in the first place, even though it's really clear that she's extremely insecure. And you can see how she's been like, bowled over by this rich, powerful guy. I felt like the finale kind of explained that. She has a Yeah, I mean, I accepted it, but he is fucking terrible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the things that stuck out to me more were the Mossbachers, which is the the family with Connie Britton and Steve Zahn, are all staying in this one suite that only has one bedroom. So the teenage girls are sleeping on like a fold out couch, which I mean, it's like a nice fold out couch. But then <laughs> this poor son, Quinn, has been pushed out into sleeping in the like little kitchen net thing, which is like a room off the main living part of the suite where he's just like dying because it's way too hot and the girls are like you can't be in here with us go away and so he winds up then going out and sleeping on the beach to just get away from them and all of this plays in really well into the family dynamics of that unit which are just like perfectly expressed in the show both writing and performance and I do want to say more about the actors uh, all of them but those actors specifically. But I did keep thinking like, okay, so Connie Britton is supposed to be like a Mark Zuckerberg type. Why have they just booked a suite with multiple bedrooms? Like it doesn't make any sense. You just kind of go along with it, right? But like, it doesn't make sense. I have to assume that like she booked it late and like Quinn obviously gets the short end of the stick because literally no one in his family gives a shit about him. (laughs) Right. But like, that's not, you have to do the mental gymnastics in your head to justify that. And this show's so well written that you kind of just go along, but like, it doesn't really make sense. And then Paula, the friend of Olivia, who plays the daughter of Connie Britton and Steve Zan, has this kind of romance with one of the employees at the hotel who's named Kai, who is played by an actor named Kekoa Scott Kekumano, who is a native Hawaiian, which becomes a disaster in the later episodes, which we will discuss. But I felt that that 
relationship was a little bit underdeveloped. It all kind of makes sense, but it just felt like a couple more scenes would have been really helpful. And that's the kind of thing where, like, if you have someone who's really good at giving notes, giving notes, that that probably would have been flagged. On the other hand, though, I think the fact that this was written so fast and that clearly no one had any oversight onto anything does have benefits too, right? Like, you're really getting the product of, like, one person's brain and, like, what he is interested in. And that's very interesting. And we often talk with, you know, famous filmmakers who have too much power and clearly aren't getting any, any editing anymore. And you're like, oh, this has gone wrong because like Quentin Tarantino really needs to be reined in. And this is kind of the opposite situation. We're kind of just letting Mike White do his thing yields really fascinating results. And one of the cool things about television is that you can have a writer's room where you get lots of different perspectives on things both in terms of like race and gender but also just like people have different thoughts about things and life experiences and like putting that all into a room can be really generative but on the other hand it's also really fascinating to watch something that's just like no this is this one guy's creative vision and he has fully executed it because he directed the whole thing himself too and like we'll get at the end into more like thematic critiques of the show which people have had I think it's definitely like open to critique but I kind of really enjoyed the sense of just like this is just a complete realized thing that came from one person's brain and even if it doesn't totally work on every level like I really enjoyed that experience of like being in somebody's head in a very kind of pure way and I think that's particularly relevant to the fact that two of the main strengths of it are an extremely specific sense of humor which is very difficult to do with a group of people and also it's political themes because obviously the whole show is about privilege and white privilege in particular and colonialism and the idea of all these people going to Hawaii to relax the title of the show is a reference to the lotus eaters like the Tennyson poem and also the myth about these people who go and like are on an island and are in this state of sort of like hypnotic blissful lethargy because they're eating the lotuses you know that sort of thing but um there's loads and loads of different perspectives in the show and I think that's the reason why there's going to be a lot of very diverse perspectives on like what the show is trying to say but I think the important thing is that it's not remotely didactic like there's some extremely obvious political themes in that you know, most of these really rich people are terrible and self-absorbed in very plausible but very different ways while also being very emotionally complex characters. And then because we're also getting the perspectives of the hotel workers, or at least we've got two really good perspectives from the hotel workers with Armand and Belinda, the spa person, you understand like a lot of what's going on there and like the longer we spend in Hawaii the more we understand about like the concept of this hotel just as this sort of toxic force that also because of colonialism is economically necessary to the community there's just like loads of really interesting ideas percolating without there needing to be an explicit message that's like articulated by the the characters like there's a couple of times where that happens but it feels quite organic and It's especially kind of smart in the context of there being these two young women who are extremely politically switched on and are like fucking reading these like obnoxious texts all the time. (laughs) But they're not activists and the white girl especially, like the daughter of Steve Zahn and um, Connie Britton, 
is just like a monster. Like she's a monster who is like the kind of person that people are, I mean, the way the way those two characters were envisioned is that Mike White was like, you two should listen to the Red Scare podcast. (laughs) And it's like, that was like the creative background. And those two girls are like terrifying because there's a few scenes in the earlier episodes where you just see them like destroy someone emotionally just by like asking them pointed questions in that sort of like horrifying cynical way that adolescents can achieve like and you're just like as an older person destroyed by knowing that you're not cool and you're being judged by these like two girls just fantastic oh but yeah just like the political complexity of the show in a way that doesn't feel like it's been messed around by some executive being like oh we need to explain that clearer is such a great benefit here yes i did think there's a speech where Steve Zahn is like, colonialism is bad, but like, I don't want to give up my white privilege, which was like two on the nose for me. <laughs> Since that character is already kind of embodying that. And so again, it's like a little bit of the writing, right? It's like, this was just done so fast. But for the most part, it's really astonishing what he pulled off. And the characters just all feel like such real people which again is a testament both to the writing and to the performances. And what one of the things I found interesting about the production of the show was that everybody had to audition. And like, a lot of these people are very accomplished actors, including Steve Zahn and Connie Britton, but they're all so perfect for the roles, which I'm sure is partially a product of the fact that they auditioned everybody. Steve Zahn, I just loved him so much in this show. Because it's clear that he's not, like, a bad guy. He's just kind of hapless. And, like, you never find out what his job is, or indeed if he even has a job. Like, he's just kind of going along with it, and his wife is a nightmare. And you're like, you just need to get a divorce, which clearly is not in the cards, right? But he's also not, like, a moral bastion of anything. It's just he's kind of this hopeless, you know, figure. And he depicts that sort of, like, essential niceness but also he's a little bit dumb (laughs) a little clueless really really well and then Connie Britton too who was not one of the I mean everyone was saying like everybody on the show is great but she wasn't one of the people who was getting like particularly called out and I wouldn't say she was one of like the top two or three people I would have mentioned either but she is just so good at playing that kind of really self-absorbed rich woman who's like in charge of the family and indeed her like business empire who can't really conceive of the fact that other people have emotions. Yeah, I mean, she's all surface because like she's constantly like bustling around and doing stuff with her job, but like she's never having meaningful emotional conversations and she's always giving what almost feels like sound bites because she's clearly someone who's been interviewed a lot and she does like panels and shit because she's this big tech CEO. But she'll like make some comment where it's like, oh, you've just like heard this in a podcast or something. Like when she talks about her son, she's like, you need to be much nicer to Quinn. You know, it's really hard out there for like straight white teenage boys right now. And I'm like, okay, so you've got this like opinion. I mean, she's like this kind of, you know, Hillary Clinton sort of success person. You know, that's the, the zone. But it's just like nothing she's saying or doing is emotionally authentic until like, you know, she's in like a moment of true emotional stress, you know, and it's just like, it's very grim. And I also think her styling's fantastic because obviously they've not really changed much about Connie Britton's appearance. Like 
she is a middle-aged woman who has flowing blonde hair and wears a particular kind of makeup. But I feel like just the way she looks in this show is like perfect. Like she's perfect visual type as pretty much everyone is. Like they've got like really great styling. Like Jennifer Coolidge is playing such a Jennifer Coolidge character. (laughs) And like, it's not like she has like one character she plays. She can play a wide range, but just like the weirdness and the way she looks, the clothing choices... Ugh, they're all great. Well, let's talk about her for a minute since you brought her up. And Natasha Rothwell, who plays Belinda. Oh my god, poor Belinda. Um, She's the only person in the show who's just like a nice, like fully just a nice person who you're just like, oh, I'm so sorry that you have to deal with all of this fucking awful bullshit. Yeah, she like, her instinct is to just help people. She works in the spa. She helps people like relax truly doing all this emotional labor for total strangers which in the case of Jennifer Coolidge's character Tanya Tanya's like a a vampire and like she's not malevolent but she's like so she's so emotionally damaged and she she's very open about it and like she definitely feels like someone you'd meet we've all had awkward conversations where like you meet someone and they immediately like open up about stuff that's just like way too real you know and that is that character (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and Belinda too, like she does seem like someone who genuinely wants to yeah. be helpful to people, but also like it's her job to help these rich white people who are like, I'm emotionally messed up right now. Yeah. And the problem is here is like, Tanya has absolutely no boundaries whatsoever. <laughs> yes. And she winds up saying like, you should have your own business and like I could finance that and of course Belinda's like oh my god that would be amazing because working at this resort fucking sucks and from minute one of the two of them interacting you know that this is going to end badly yeah there's absolutely no way that she is actually gonna follow through and pay for this wellness center for Belinda it's just not gonna happen but obviously you can see the wishful thinking happening, right? Because like when someone offers you something that cool, it's very hard to like let go of that idea in the face of just like a ton of evidence to the contrary. Yes. And like on the off chance that it might happen, like of course you're going to want to try to pursue it. But as the viewers of the show, like we know that it will not. And when we were mentioning in this at the end of our episode last week, you were talking about how you found so watching it so sort of like uncomfortable. And I found the show in general basically just wildly entertaining, even as you're kind of like, oh God, these people. But this was the part where I had to like pause repeatedly. Because I was just like, this is horrible. Because in all the other situations, it's not as objectively like there is one person who is just being exploited like there are kind of levels to which everybody else in the show is participating in some way right in the sort of like shit that's going on whereas in this case you're like oh oh no (laughs) this is just awful and because you totally know what's going to happen from the beginning like there's no sense of uncertainty or suspense and I thought Natasha Rothwell whom I don't think I've seen in anything before. I may have, but I if so I don't recall. I mean her. this is definitely her big breakout role because yeah. like she's someone who's been in very small roles in a couple of movies and has been in like one or two episodes of 
various comedy shows yeah. you know she's in one episode of the of a black lady sketch show that sort of thing yeah so like this is definitely her breakout and she is fantastic in this role and again this is like i wouldn't put her on like my top three actors in the show but it's a, such a testament to the casting because i think she is also incredible like every single actor on the show does such a good job and she doesn't have as flashy a part as jennifer coolidge or for instance marie bartlett whom we'll talk about more later but she just makes that character feel like such a real person and without being particularly showy about it because her job is to just be kind of agreeable right like she can't show that much emotion you totally get how emotionally invested she gets in the idea of this hypothetical business and then when it inevitably doesn't happen how crushing that is for her yeah i just thought she was great and then of course jennifer coolidge is just like on another plane of existence (laughs) the stuff she does with her voice never ceases to amaze me because she she famously has this very breathy voice which in her younger years meant that she did a sort of quite a lot of like bimbo roles like comedy bimbo roles and um, obviously she's now no longer like in that age range but it's just fascinating the way she'll do like sort of breathy voice and then like kind of husky and growly and like too loud and too quiet because this character is just like really socially unsettling because she has no boundaries and like is just like very strange but she's like strange in like a rich white lady way that makes it sort of acceptable to be in this scenario even though she's just incredibly uncomfortable to watch yeah um there's a great scene in the third episode i believe where she like charters the resort's boat to go like scatter her mother's ashes in the ocean and Armand, who's trying to fuck with the honeymoon couple, is like, yeah, you know, it would be a great idea for like a romantic evening uh, would be to go on our boat to, you know, sail around the harbor without telling them that this other event is going to be happening. So Shane and Rachel are like witnessing her just like giving this speech <laughs> about her her horrible mother. And even Shane, who is awful, he's like pissed off that this is happening. But as soon as she starts, he's kind of just like, uh, okay. Transfixed. Like, I'm not going to interrupt you. And then like tries to be kind of helpful when she really loses it. She just starts talking about her mom. And I don't think there was very much improv in this show at all, except for Jennifer Coolidge, who of course does that all the time. And I can't even begin to describe what she's saying in the show. And I read an interview with Jake Lacey, who plays Shane, who is tremendous um i don't think we've said that people will probably know him from playing like dream boyfriends in lots of roles but he's also done several things which are like clearly he is clued into the type he is because like he plays the guy in carol that one of the two women leaves for another woman and he's been in like a couple of feminist tv shows so i think it's like he's clearly like aware of his own sort of generic madness but even in carol There's nothing objectionable about him in Carol, except that he's not a woman. (laughs) That's the problem. But the things he he initially broke out for doing were um, Obvious Child, which I love, in which he plays like the, like truly the ideal boyfriend. Like there is nothing about him that you you don't like in that. And then Girls, he had a sort of brief run playing uh, Lena Dunham's boyfriend and like she's the huge fuck up in that show and he's just like a nice guy who gets like the unfortunate chance of winding up dating her. But anyway... He's cast against type in this as a monster. But I read an interview with him where he was like, when we shot that scene on the boat, it was all that we could do not to just 
burst out laughing and I think they did a couple of times because she was just <laughs> saying shit and they were like what is happening because it wasn't the script <laughs> so yeah she is really incredible I mean one of the things I really love about that character is she says really explicitly several times like I've had every treatment known to man like she's clearly been going to all sorts of quackery you know and she's decided that Belinda is like the perfect person to heal her with her emotional openness or whatever. But like the character has so clearly been therapized to death because like she can talk really explicitly about the ways in which her mother like damaged her emotionally. But that knowledge has like not helped in any no. way because no. she is like so like she is so complicated and so fucked up that it's like, well, you're aware of this, but like you're still being really messed up. <laughs> it's kind of like it puts pain to the like, people kind of talk about therapy like it's like oh go to therapy and the problem be solved and it's like actually the human psyche is very complex <laughs> yes there is a vast chasm between self-awareness and uh actually changing your behavior as demonstrated by this character and yeah the last big character whom, whom we've mentioned a couple times is Arbond the maitre d who is played by Murray Bartlett who to me, is the MVP of the show. Although, oh yeah, hypnotic. Oh my god. <laughs> so I had only, he's an Australian actor. He's been in lots of Aussie stuff, but I had only seen him in another HBO show that aired for a couple seasons, Looking, which was about a group of gay men in San Francisco, in which I believe he had to have an American accent, which was totally like he did totally well. I mean, he's now starring in the Tales from the City series, which is also a queer San Francisco drama. Yeah. And I really liked looking. It didn't, the ratings were bad, which is why it got canceled. But I remember thinking he was great in that show. All the actors in that show were really good, but hadn't really thought about him in a while because that show's been off the air for some time. And so when he showed up in this again, I was like, oh, right, I really like that guy. And he is just, I mean, stunning. <laughs> incredible. So the first couple episodes before he's gotten back onto drugs and alcohol. You can already sense that he is kind of at the end of his rope. The like grinning teeth smile. He's got this smile, manic like... grin and a moustache, which is like already quite distinctive because it's like if you look at pictures of him pre-moustache, he's like just a hunk. And now he, because of the moustache, it just adds a certain something. It makes him very distinctive. And then you combine that with his facial expressions, which are stunning because his whole job is like this performance of like pure enthusiasm and joy to be serving these people from the minute they arrive on the island like anything that goes wrong is just like perfect customer service it's like you can see why he's been promoted to this role because he is if you've ever worked in the service industry he is managing a 24 7 performance of what they always want you to be doing which is like answering every question with delight Although, of course, his downfall is Shane, who just becomes, like, completely obsessed with getting the correct honeymoon suite for him and his wife. And um, that turns into, like, this kind of, like, murderous rivalry between them both. But um, obviously, kind of, once he somewhat inevitably falls off the wagon, which is a spoiler, I think we're going to talk about spoilers now, gets this other part to his personality, which is, like, just fully letting his id out into the wild. Because, no. <laughs> like, as soon as he starts taking drugs he gains this sort of powerful expression of carnality, which I rarely do you see something like this on TV because it really is animalistic. Like yeah. he's got this rage and lust and it's like usually when there's depictions of lust in pop culture, especially American pop culture, it's either erotic or seedy. 
And with him, it's just like this sort of like red hot, like burning sort of, <laughs> just like, I mean, there is like an element of seediness, but it's, there's just this like roaring fire of just aggression coming out of him. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, there's a scene where, so the end of the second episode, Steve Zahn, who had always thought that his father died of cancer, finds out that in fact his father died of AIDS and had this secret double life where he was sleeping with men and of course this sends Steve Zahn into this total spiral because he yeah masculinity spiral yeah he's yeah. revered his father as this like man's man and he's like oh my god and so he gets drunk and Armand is also at the bar getting drunk and he like asks him basically like what gay sex is like and Armand's like what is happening <laughs> but then basically just like hits on him and Steve Zahn seems to be like a little bit into it but is also like I can't deal with this like what's going on and then he moves on to sexually harassing one of the young male employees at the hotel who initially is like, I'm very uncomfortable and then decides kind of like, well, I guess I'll do this. I really enjoyed that trajectory because it was sort of like, it was so kind of mercenary and it's it's like not the obvious choice, you know, because it's yes. like they, they're like, oh yeah, like this is manipulative, but it's very overtly manipulative and you don't feel like the younger guy is particularly vulnerable. He's just like, yeah, fuck it, free drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was handled really well because you do get the initial couple scenes where the younger guy is like, clearly like, this is my boss and this is making me very uncomfortable. And then he kind of works out that all the power hierarchies are kind of in flux because boss is just in such a state of like whatever man like you know and as you say he's kind of like yeah i can get some drugs and this seems fine so whatever which is not how those narratives would normally play out and then the stuff with shane just gets progressively worse and worse his mother shows up to this honeymoon for like one or two episodes played beautifully by molly shannon who is always incredible that was an exquisite, unbearable old money American lady oh performance. Just oh like the most unbearable women, but so real. <laughs> yeah, so Rachel at this point is having this crisis about like, do I keep doing my job? I don't really want to be controlled by my husband's money. And Molly Shannon is just like, what's wrong with being a trophy wife? You can like serve on the board of charities. And Rachel's just like, oh my god, no. But we should move on to the finale, I think, so that we can talk about what the show is ultimately saying. So if you haven't seen the finale slash the show and don't want to be spoiled, you should definitely stop listening now. But what winds up happening is that Armand gets a call from one of the like higher ups at the hotel management and realizes that he's going to be fired because of all the Shane mess. And fully is just like, fuck it, I'm done. And so he does like one more evening seating and it's this beautiful like, slow-mo and he says to someone after like that was the best seating I've ever done because he's totally just released from any he's high as a kite and he's got like sort of like he knows he's gonna be fired so he's just like does the perfect job (laughs) and then goes to Shane's room and uh takes shit in his suitcase which I will say had been mentioned in a major review of this show in like week two, which in retrospect, really? yeah, like what the fuck? But anyway. That's scandalous. But also actually we should mention a secondary piece of backstory before we go any further, which is like one of the other main storylines that comes to a head the episode before this is that um, 
the friend who came along with the Mossbachers, Paula, who had a little love affair with one of the guys who was working at the hotel, Kai. They have this heart-to-heart where Kai kind of explains about how he and his family have been like exploited by the people who've colonized Hawaii and like this is his only job opportunity and his community can't afford a lawyer to fight to get their land back and that sort of thing. And she is genuinely very sympathetic and you see how this relationship is really transformative for her because it allows her to be sincere in a way that she can't be with like her horrible white friend. And she suggests to Kai that he can just rob the Mossbacher family. Like she can give him the code to their safe and he as a staff member can use a key card to get into the hotel room and steal some of their jewelry, which is like incredibly expensive. It's it, This is like such a stressful part of the show because like, you know, it could potentially go well, but it's probably not going to because they're not adept thieves and they don't know like the complexities of the security system here. And also, even if he did steal these allegedly $75,000 worth bracelets, how is he going to sell them? Like, they're not going to be the same market value, etc., etc. But basically, there is this, like, string of coincidences that lead to him being caught. And he's actually caught off screen, which is something we'll discuss in a minute. Like, the show kind of dismisses several characters who are, like, employees of the resort. Like, they're just kind of written out because... They are just like relevant to the like continuous success of the white guests. But basically he gets caught and that means the hotel is now on high alert to the idea of there being a thief. And Shane, who is like very aggro and paranoid, is extremely into this idea and like has a knife in his room ready to stab any potential jewel thieves. Which means that when Armand, his nemesis, comes into the room to take a dump in his suitcase, he finds Armand and stabs him to death. Yes. And it kind of like comes around the corner. Like it's not on purpose, but also. Yeah. He stabs him and it's shocked. Yeah. And I found this really interesting because Mike White had explicitly said every TV show now starts with like a dead body. So I figured that that would be a good way to start my TV show because like that'll hook people. But the whole structure of the show doesn't really function as a like a mystery or certainly not a murder mystery because the murder happens right at the end, right? And I certainly was not watching with any interest in that component. Like, I just was loving the show, so, like, whatever. But there have been speculation online about, like, who would be the person in the coffin. Jennifer Coolidge's character winds up sort of having this romantic hookup with this middle-aged guy she meets at the hotel who has this, like, hacking cough, which in most media means that you're going to die. And so people were like, maybe it will be him, which would kind of be subverting the whole concept because he's not very significant. As far as I'm aware, zero people predicted that Armand would be the one to die. And as soon as it happens, you're like, oh, of course, that was inevitable. And yet somehow no one saw it coming, which is a real feat of writing as far as I'm concerned. Because once you have seen the whole thing, like this guy is just on this like, catastrophic downward trajectory right i mean it works for his character and it works thematically for the whole concept of the show which is that all these people who are working in the service industry are being exploited and it ends up horribly for all of them there's no such thing as like this american dream success story of the little guy winning out in the end the people who win are the rich white privileged monsters and 
there's like no evidence that Shane is going to face repercussions for this because you see kind of some detective just like shaking hands with them and waving him off. So it's clear that he's just been like, oh, I found this dead body in my tub rather than I stabbed this guy, you know. I think they know he stabbed him, but that's self-defense. I think that's absolutely what happened. I mean, either way, whatever happened with that makes it pretty clear that like he's getting away with it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he would have had a knife with his fingerprints and blood on it. But, like, there's been, like, robberies in the hotel. The guy was in his room and, like, had shit in his yeah. suitcase. So I think everyone knows what happened, but they're just like, well, goodbye. Which is, a, again, a perfect illustration of he's this, like, super rich white tourist who's come in and, like, okay, well, I'll just carry on then. I mean, in real life, there probably would have been slightly more of an investigation, but I have no doubt that that man would not have faced serious Yeah, legal... that man has the best lawyers. Yeah, oh, big time. And one of the critiques of the show, which you mentioned, which I do think is, like, a valid criticism, is that the sort of, like, downstairs characters, right, the um, people who work at the hotel, once something happens to them, they basically vanish. So... One of the, there's an employee in the first episode who gets quite a lot of screen time in that episode who is pregnant and is like going into labor, but she hasn't said anything to the people who work at the hotel about the fact that she's pregnant because obviously she needs a job. And like, if you say that, then they're not going to hire you. And like, literally like her water breaks (laughs) on like her first day. And... Armand actually, like, feels really bad about not having noticed this, which also contributes to his kind of, like, downward spiral. And she gets mentioned a couple other times, but we don't see her again. Yeah, I was always really curious, so I was like, how's she doing? (laughs) Yeah. And then Kai, who is the young guy who attempts to steal the jewelry and then gets caught, like, you just don't see him again after that. And I can certainly see the critique of like okay so you have these characters of color who just kind of vanish from the story right and then we recenter on these rich white people but one thing i thought was interesting that was that like the same thing kind of happens to armand although it happens right at the end of the show of course he does get to sort of be around the whole time but he gets stabbed to death and you do get one shot of his face as he kind of is like realizes that he's dying But that's it. There's no memorialization of him. No one is sad about it. I mean, presumably they are, but you don't see that. It's totally unsentimental. Like, he's just gone. Which fits the ethos of the show that we were talking about, right? which is that, like, all these tourists are going to the island for one week to suck it dry for their own rest and relaxation and have these transformative experiences, which, like, all of them do in one way or another. Like the Mossbacher family are like, oh, we've been brought closer together by this horrible crime. And like, it's very clear that's not going to be like a lasting effect, but these people have like vanished in their lives because they're no longer relevant to them. I, d- I don't know if I would characterize the way he's depicting vacation as like transformative or delightful. <laughs> no, it's not at all. I mean, it's like, it's very cynical and unpleasant, but like I was interested by the way that the final scenes we get with like the Mossbackers, this like traumatic experience has like papered over the fact that they're like obviously extremely measurable and it's shit. But I think that's more like the status quo is maintained for all of these people. Yeah. Because in the finale, Rachel says to her horrible husband, like, I think this was a mistake. Like, I don't think we should be married. This is horrible. And she gives a speech about the sort of run up to the wedding that I think makes 
the fact that they got married way more comprehensible yeah. to us. Like, I felt that way anyway. Where you get the sense that she kind of knew a little bit more than it seemed like what this guy was like, but she was sort of swept up by all the wedding stuff and, like, he was really hot, which obviously would be part of the appeal. But that sort of confronted with the reality of him alone, she's like, I just can't do this. But she goes back to him at the end of the episode. Like, she shows up at the airport, which to me felt like a combination of, like, she, like she's too afraid to have to be an independent person. And also, like, he just killed someone. And so there's a kind of sympathy. He has gone through something terrible, right? As opposed to... The other guy died, so <laughs> that's worse. And with the Mossbachers, like, they do get this sort of, as you say, papering over of the bad stuff. But the actual solution to that would be for them to get a divorce. Because, like, that marriage is not functional yeah, I agree. at all. Right? And Jennifer Coolidge has been like, I'm too dependent on men. And she, like, finds a man who she's going to run off <laughs> yes. with for a while, right? So, like, they're all kind of just reverting to where yeah. they've been at the beginning. I guess I worded that wrong. Like, I didn't mean, like, the vacations are, like, a huge success, but it's, like, they've decided to feel that way. And the concept of the vacation is marketed that way, which feels interesting in the context of what I've heard of Mike White's last show, Enlightenment, Enlightened. But um, in the context of those service industry characters just vanishing, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. You know? I've only seen, like, four or five episodes of Enlightened, but basically the main character played by Laura Dern has like a full on nervous breakdown at her corporate job and then goes on like a wellness retreat Mm -hmm. and comes back and is like, I've been totally transformed, but the world has not transformed. And so she kind of is the same person in a lot of ways and has to kind of try to like grit her teeth and maintain this, like everything's so I'm, I'm doing yoga. Like it's fine. And like, it doesn't, you know, you can't just, preserve this sense of like peace once you're back in the real world and I think he said that like this show is more cynical than that one and I think part of that is that like there isn't really any sense that the vacation is relaxing like they're all just stressed out and fighting all the time and the only person who you get the sense has any moment of like epiphany is Quinn the teenage boy who's still young enough to be malleable yeah That was a really interesting finale because like in Mike White's Vulture interview, he is like, yeah, I admit that's a fantasy because like in the last few episodes, Quinn befriends this group of local guys who are like canoeing around and he basically joins their group. But they kind of articulate that in a pretty good way because I was, you don't really see any of their conversations together. It's more like he is interested in these guys and you can see that he's like craving any sense of friendship or community And also just, like, brotherhood, because his dad has all these, like, extremely apparent masculinity neuroses. And then there's these guys who are just, like, these happy, cheerful group of, like, muscular dudes who love to row around. And initially when he was, like, at first sort of, like, smiling at them and sort of approaching them and stuff, I was ready to cringe so much. Because it's, like, very awkward to watch this, like, very nerdy white guy watching these guys with such such kind of obvious desire to join them but like he's not got great social skills but because you don't see those conversations take place it does kind of work and they acknowledge that he's not athletic he is basically there as sort of like weight because they're missing a guy who didn't show up so he's the sort of dead weight in their boat but 
I mean, people are complicated and you kind of can accept that maybe these guys do find him sort of nice and, you know, they will let him join. And the show ends with him running away from his family at the airport and joining these guys in their boat, which is a fantasy. And obviously it's not something that's going to last long term. But to me, it felt kind of more metaphorical because he is the person who's now got away because during the process of, of this holiday, he has kind of realized how terrible his family are, which he kind of already knew. He loses his phone, so like he has to connect more with nature. And it's like, yeah, that's corny, but it is also a real thing. And I obviously don't think he's gonna like go and join this group of guys on the water in Hawaii for the rest of his life. But I do think that he is gonna be one of those former rich kids who just goes and works in a co-op farm somewhere. Yes. <laughs> and he's gonna be a lot happier than the rest of his family. <laughs> I also think one of the interesting things about that last episode is that, like, the show has positioned Paula slightly as a more sympathetic figure, certainly more sympathetic than Olivia, who is the the child of the Mossbachers. And you do feel like she's listening to them talk in, like, this totally clueless way and clearly is aggravated by it. Yeah. But... When push comes to shove, like, she's the one who initiated this unbelievably stupid plan to steal these I was very frustrated when, like, she had the option of, like, texting Kai. You don't see her, like, texting or calling Kai. Or, like, getting out of the boat. Because, like, when the the moment comes where she knows that that Connie Britton's going to go back to the hotel room and catch him she could have got out of the boat and gone with her or like warned Kai. And at that point, it wasn't really clear if she had Kai's phone number. But then in the finale, you do see that she has Kai's phone well, number. So I'm like, you had the option of warning him. And I couldn't tell if that was like a plot hole or if it was I, just like her being careless. I think it's totally intentional. And I think she just freezes up. And then after the fact, she has the option to like go to the police and say, this was my idea and I really pushed him to do it, which obviously would get her in a ton of trouble, but is the correct ethical thing to do. And instead, she throws the necklace he made for her overboard into the ocean. And it's just like, well, I'm done with this. And I think that that really reinforces the, like, class stuff going on, right? Like, it's more about that than anything else. And, like, she's been really disgusted with the Mossbachers. But when, again, when push comes to shove, like, she chooses to stay aligned with them rather than to actually disconnect herself because they're the ones with the money right which i thought was really smart writing the interview with him and vulture with mike white and vulture i just cannot recommend highly enough i found it totally fascinating so it was conducted by katherine van arendonk who is a great television critic and she asked him about the sort of critiques of the show including what we mentioned about those characters kind of vanishing and also that there have been some critiques by Native Hawaiian writers who kind of thought that some of the way he writes about those issues was oversimplified, which I do not doubt is the case. Obviously, I am not an expert on this. And I thought the conversation was just really interesting because he doesn't really get defensive. He's basically like, yeah, I can see how that, like, I'm open to critique. Like, I, I get it. But while also kind of saying, like, I think that my method of working alone is like what works for me and I really believe as a writer that you can kind of inhabit other people's realities, which I also think. And again, I don't think this is like a perfect show or above critique. Like I think part of what makes it interesting is that there are a lot of ways you can kind of see it. And even if some of those ways aren't as positive, that it's a strength of the writing, that it kind of can be refracted in a lot of different ways. But 
the thing I kept thinking about was like, and I always say this, and like Hollywood is just very resistant <laughs> to doing this. It's a structural problem as opposed to like a problem with an individual show, right? Like this show I thought was basically great and I really enjoyed it. And the problem to me is like what Hollywood chooses to green light and the proportion of shows that are about rich white people versus other people. And specifically what gets put on HBO in their primetime slot on Sunday nights. Because especially it feels like over the pandemic when there's not been a lot going on, it's been really clear to me that those shows that get that prime slot at like 9 or 10 p.m. on Sundays at HBO just get so much more coverage than like basically anything else on television. It's kind of a like relic of the old model, but it's still true that like if Netflix dumps something all at once, it's not going to get the same kind of coverage that these HBO shows do. And obviously part of that is that they are smart about green lighting shows that have that kind of like slightly soapy or plotty element. And a lot of them do have a mystery element. So that gets people hooked like Mare of Town and The Undoing, which was awful, were murder mysteries. And so like that gets people to want to watch them. But I think that time slot is really meaningful. And so like what HBO chooses to program there is significant. And I think late last year, earlier this year, I think it was last year, they had Lovecraft County in that time slot, which featured a majority black cast and was created by a black woman. And that show, I think, got slightly less coverage than something like this, although it still did get a lot of coverage. And I just thought that show was not very good. And I was like, well, just think about what you're putting in this slot, right? Like, there's so many talented writers who are not Mike White who could get an amazing shot to do something like this that's not just about, like, rich white people on vacation, right? And I just feel like a lot of it is on the programmers and people and the executives, but how you regulate that, right? Like, it's so hard to force people like that to make smarter choices about this stuff because they have no vested interests in doing so because they do not give a shit. So I think it is, it's tough and complicated, and I don't really have a solution. But I liked this show. So, yeah. Very frustrating in certain ways. Soon we'll get Succession again, which once more. <laughs> yes. It's in precisely the same zone. <laughs> yeah. Although he did say, which I thought was an interesting comparison, that like he was trying to be like not do exactly Succession and have more of the like rich people you might be more likely to actually interact with, which I yeah. think is way more. Because part of the thing about Succession here. is it's like that family is like so uniquely fucked up. Yes. And like, there are not very many people like that in the world because there are not very many Rupert Murdoch's, right? Like that's a, that's a very elevated set of circumstances. Whereas these people are more like, yeah, they're very rich, but in a more recognizable way, which means that they're less grotesque in most cases and slightly more human, but still, like, shitty. Systemically awful. Just Shane is a monster. But the rest of them are more kind of, like, up and down. Before we finish, you have to talk about the music of the show, which we've neglected up until the end, because I put Yeah, we should have said before the spoiler point, I realized. Yeah. Yeah, no. (laughs) So the music in the show is getting so much buzz for good reason. It's got one of these amazing theme songs which it's incredibly catchy but you can't really sing it like it's not like a tune (laughs) 
But the composer's name is Cristobal Tapia de Vere, who is a Chilean-Canadian composer who does a lot of percussion stuff. And when I was looking up interviews with him about the show, I realized actually I've heard some of his other music and other things and he's got like a very familiar zone. Um, He did the music for Utopia and Humans, which I've not seen, but he also did the music for the Third Day miniseries earlier this year on HBO, which is this other sort of prestige, very weird. It's a folk horror series starring Jude Law and it's got a great vibe. And he also did the music for The Girl with All the Gifts, which is a fantastic British indie zombie movie, which I highly recommend. And basically he does a lot of music, which doesn't sound the same as The White Lotus, but it's kind of playing a lot with unusual percussion and vocals that are not traditional vocals. And with this TV show, it's interesting because like the music he's chosen is sort of playing into the idea of the resort as this sort of like fake tropical paradise because there's elements of the music in this which are kind of like when you hear what I would just personally think of as like racist music where it's like you see like a TV show and they do like incidental music to be like, oh, we're in the jungle now. And they'll just have some like random bongos. And it's like, well, this music like doesn't originate from anywhere authentic. It's just like what Hollywood has decided. And it kind of felt like some elements of the music in this were satirizing that in a much more sort of abstract way. And also like just in terms of atmosphere, it's extremely tense because you've got all these like weird percussion things. And I read this interview with him at NPR where he said... When I'm playing the flutes, I'm playing really fast notes and these are really big flutes. And to be able to do that, I have to breathe so hard between every note that I'm literally going out of breath. And it creates a lot of anxiety because you can feel there's someone going out of air in the track. And I'm like, that's so true. (laughs) There's constantly like weird breathing stuff going on. And it's just like, it's very kind of funny and weird. Like there's ones which have like all these monkey noises going on them because like there's this sort of subplot where Steve Zahn's character is like comparing himself to a monkey because of his like sex habits. Uh, (laughs) um, It's got this like fantastic kind of combination of like just hints of stuff like Calypso going on there while also just being like extremely unsettling as a thriller experience. Yeah, it contributes so much to the sense of unease and just like this is not good. Yeah. And because they've got like certain themes that like return for certain storylines, you get really trained into it by the final episode. You're like, oh, this music's coming in. I'm feeling something now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we've discussed many times, I tend not to notice music so much unless it's like really exceptional or playing a huge part in the story. And both are true in this case. Like it is definitely a major element of the storytelling in this show. I can't really imagine watching it without that like it would be such a different thing yeah i think that's pretty much it do we have any final thoughts no love the show well done white lotus <laughs> great i'm very much looking forward to the next season which will be different people different location and i'm sure also very entertaining so next week we will be discussing an early Baz Luhrmann film this may actually be his first movie i'm not sure strictly ballroom which I have been meaning to see for many years. I saw it many years ago and I remember it being very entertaining, but um, I'm curious to see what I think now. Yeah, I love Buzz Lerman, of course. Yeah, very fun. Google summary says, a top ballroom dancer pairs with a plain left-footed local girl when his maverick style earns him the disdain of his more conventionally minded colleagues. So it sounds like some dirty dancing vibes, <laughs> which I, of course, love. So yeah, I think that will be a lot of fun. So... Check that out before next week. And yeah, thank 
you all, as always, for listening. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.